Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim R. And this is episode nine. And today we're going to be interviewing Bobby H. How you doing, Bobby? I'm good. That's glad. I'm glad to hear that. Um, so yeah, Bobby's been a, a recent member of our Zoom meetings and was nice enough to offer to do this for us. So let's dive into it. So tell me a little bit about your childhood, if there was anything you think might have been related or a contribution to your later on addicted uh, addiction problems? Well, um, my mom, you know, I come from a long line of addicts and alcoholics. Um, I have pictures of my great grandparents, you know, where they, people in that age would normally, you know, solemn and didn't smile and, you know, like they, thought they were going to lose their soul if they showed their teeth and you know my great-grandparents when they were in pictures were partying with their friends my great-grandma would be wearing different hats and holding up they were hold up or she would have a cigar and a bottle of booze and so would my great-grandfather you know you could just tell they were partiers and my grandfather you know was an alcoholic my mom uh, I don't know if she was ever an alcoholic, but she was definitely a pill head. And, um, uh, so, uh, yeah, I came, I don't know if it's, I don't know about genetics or anything like that, but if there is an addiction gene, which I believe there is, I definitely was born with that. My mom, by the age of 20, uh, 23, had three kids and um, was escaping an abusive household and um, gave ended up giving up all of her kids. And she was married 14 times, 15, wow. twice the same guy. Wow. Yeah. So she, you know, she had issues herself. And for a long time, I was angry at her for the things that she did that affected my adulthood, you know, cause it was easy to place blame. You know, it was, it was easier than having to be responsible for my own actions. Um, she dropped me off with one of her husbands, ex-husbands that she had divorced for ab- physically abusing her. And, um, she dropped me and my little sister off and then she came back a little while later and got my little sister and said she was coming back for me, but she didn't ever. Um, and the man who raised me was, he had a wreck and in a semi and was in a wheelchair. Uh, um, so he was already on as much pain pills as they they would give him as much as he wanted in volumes and he smoked pot and drank. And so he was always under something, but he was also a severe pedophile and he beat, you know, beats was such a soft word compared to the things he did. Um, but it was a very Stephen King themed childhood. And when I was 16, he, when I got my driver's license, got in cahoots with another family member and 
uh, he bought a motorhome and started ice was driving them back and forth from Arkansas to Miami, Florida, a little suburb called Coconut Grove. And because they were too busy in the back shooting up the whole time, curtain drawn. I spent so many hours by myself up front. And I got to the point where, you know, I knew they were in the back using needles. So I would intentionally hit potholes. You know, railroad tracks <laughs> really hard just to, you know, just to mess try them, to fuck up. them up. Yeah. You know, I got desensitized to it. You know, um, it just, it didn't have that danger, um, that negative connotation that most children grow up. Um, it was something familiar to you. Understanding. It was familiar. Um, everything. And it just kind of made sense. And, you know, my dad was the type of man, he encouraged me shoplifting. You know, and he didn't even give a crap what it was, you know, uh, he would distract things and people and pharmacists and whatever. And I would just go back behind the counter and get all kinds of shit. And, you know, so to do thing, you know, I was always criminal activity was familiar, you know, so I just seemed to fit right in. And on my 17th birthday, he put a needle in my arm for the first time and I was hooked like immediately. Was that his, so that was his birthday gift to you was, what What was it? Yeah. Was it, it was cocaine. Cocaine. It was so a syringe of cocaine. Yeah. Really good stuff too. You know, I mean, we got it right from Florida, you know, and this was back during the, Pablo, Pablo Escobar days, you know, they were shipping that stuff in, you know, to Miami by the plane loads. And anyway, um, so yeah, so I got my start when I was 17. And uh, so had you done anything before that, before your 17th birthday? Had you done any drugs or alcohol? I had smoked. Um, a little bit of weed and I had drank um, before that um, I don't remember how old I was it must have been like 14, 15 um, you know we lived in the country and they had on weekends they'd have like little barn dances I mean they weren't in barns but you know, that gives you an idea of what it was like you know a little People with instruments getting up there in front of a microphone singing. People would be drinking and dancing. And, you know, that was when I first had my first blackouts, you know. When you were young? At 14 or 15, because okay. I would drink, you know, like moonshine and, uh, you know, anything. Anything I could get my hands on at that point, and my dad didn't care, you know. He didn't care that my mind was still, my brain was still forming and I was still supposed to be learning and developing. And, you know, here I am drinking liquids that eat through styrofoam, you know. Wow. And <clears throat> I would wake up, you know, on the porch of strange people's house, houses or uh, 
just different places, you know. And so those were my first blackouts. Um, okay, so you fast forward to now when you're 17 and you're doing your drives. When, or I should say, what happened after you were 17? Like, what what was life like? Well, um, for a year, you know, um, it was hell. My dad uh, uh, had all kinds of people coming and going. There were people that he um, would trade my time for, for drugs for himself. And I didn't care, you know, at the time, because I got drugs for doing it. And um, so, yeah, you know, I already had, you know, had a work sense of, um, sense of being, you know, I, you know, I didn't, I already didn't think I was worth anything or, you know, and all this stuff, you know, just edified it. It seemed it did in, you know, um, didn't think I was any good. I mean, I'd heard that from, since I was a child. And when I was doing drugs, all of a sudden, you know, I didn't have to worry. Or I didn't think about the beatings or the molestations or the words, you know, the words, can, you know, they don't, people don't think that words hurt, you know, but a punch in the face, you know, will stop hurting eventually, you know, but words live in your head forever. And, um, so I carried that, I carried it with me. And when I turned 18, uh, there came a time when I just drew the line in the sand one day and stopped my dad in the middle of his act of trying to beat me. And by doing that, um, and he had stopped drawing money off of me from social security. So I had no use to him other than providing medical attention. And he had enough bag whores and other people staying at the house, you know, to look after him that, feigned enough compassion for him, you know, because they know they, they would get dope for it. So he sent me on his way with the clothes on my back. <clears throat> and I went to another, I hitchhiked to another town. And I ended up working and sleeping in the back of this pizzeria um, until I had enough money. And I had gotten in contact with my mom on my 17th birthday. I found out she was living here in Tucson. And uh, I'd saved work until I saved up enough money and I jumped on a Greyhound bus and came out here. And I was sober and clean for quite a while. And then I started into the party scene here. And, you know, that was a completely different, unique experience. I, coming from Arkansas, wasn't exposed to anything. You know, I thought that drag queens were the women who stood in between race bars and dropped their handkerchief. You know, I had no clue, you know, that boys dressed like girls and went out in public. 
and uh, I walked into this club that was for kids like 18 or 18 and over. And it was like, all of a sudden, I felt like Dorothy walking into Oz, like everything all of a sudden became technicolored and there were all these new kinds of people and new, everything was new, everything. And including the new drug, methamphetamines. So I was not only doing it, you know, uh, not a lot at the beginning, but I was selling it and selling acid to other kids and ended up getting my little sister hooked on meth, who ended up spending most of her adult life in prison because of meth and blew up a strip mall and ended up taking her son to prison with her, barely missing the other one going. <clears throat> so that's a new generation now that's battling addiction as we speak um how did the meth affect your life were you still working did this affect your employment or relationships um yes uh i didn't work a whole lot um in fact i don't remember having a job at all during that point um I think, you know, I may have had one or two, and I remember one in particular, though, that I working graveyard at a convenience store and a 24-hour place, and I, you know, had locked up the doors and was in the back shooting up and came out, you know, and there's all these people, like, waiting, you know, at the door, and here I am, like, buzzing my brains off, and I'm, like, totally not coping well so i ended up calling the assistant manager and telling her to come now because i was getting ready to leave i mean i completely screwed up you know i and so i ended up uh being on the streets almost i had screwed everybody over so much that nobody trusted me in their house and they shouldn't have were I mean, you stealing given from half people? a chance, I would have stolen, you know, what is it they say about meth heads? You know, they'll steal something and then help you look for it. Oh, I've, you know, I've that, never heard that one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I, no, without any thought twice, didn't care. Yeah. And when you say homeless, I mean, where did, like, did you sleep literally on the streets that night? I mean, how did you? What what was up that with the night? Uh, many nights, yeah. Um, different people's couches when I could. You know, I didn't sleep a whole lot. You know, just but when I did, when my body would just like give out and I had to sleep, um, yeah, it was either anywhere I could, dude, anywhere I could. Um, gotten to the point where I had no money for anything. I was having to. I got to a point where I had to take a nasty cup off the street that would had been thrown out and I was drinking what we call reclaimed water here. And it's water that comes from people's tubs and toilets and 
you know, and it's sent to a plant here and it's, I don't know what they do to it, but it's processed. So they reuse it here in the desert for plants and trees and stuff like that. But I was so thirsty and this was before they passed that law where there had to be water, you know, so, so many feet or so. I don't know what it is now, but, uh, yeah, there weren't places that came out on the street and tried to help you. Um, no food, no clothes. There was nothing. Not that I would have taken it. You know, I don't, you know, I, w I don't think I would have taken help because I was comfortable at bottom. You know, I didn't just hit rock bottom. I made it my home. I was comfortable there. I hung pictures, you know, made a little home, sweet home sampler for the wall. <clears throat> and so, I, you know, I even, you know, I ended up getting arrested and um, got put on intensive probation. And I even won a scholarship to a community college here because of an essay I wrote. And, um, but I screwed that up later on because as soon as I got off probation, I went right back to using again. And um, so I completely screwed myself out of some college education. Um, you know, and then fast forward somehow, you know, I was in my 30s somewhere and I had met my partner that I have now of over 20 years. God bless. Um, we, uh, we started smoking Coke and, you know, off aluminum. And then next thing you know, we're smoking crack. <clears throat> and then I developed cancer and I battled cancer for eight and a half years and going into remission and coming out five different times, um, almost dying in the process, um, with some amazing experiences that lets my heart know that for me, you know, that the existence of God. And um, so I came out of, you know, I, the last time went into remission um, then I didn't drink for about 10 years. I, uh, or if I did, I might've had one or two here or there, but a couple of years ago, uh, my best friend died of cancer and I had a really hard time with that. I had survivor skill and, um, then the pandemic started and, um, uh, it was easy to drink. It was really easy. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I don't know when it started. It just increased, you know, um, anything that would make, that would get me out of my head and make me feel better. Uh, I have the potential of abusing and probably have at some point, I have such an addictive mind. I can eat a bowl. I can start in on a bowl of ice cream and I'll take my first bite and I'll immediately start thinking, oh, I'm going to have another bowl after this. 
You know, I can't wait until the next bowl. You know, instead of enjoying the ice cream that I have at that moment, you know, my addict mind is thinking, oh, this is good. You know, if one is good, then two must be better. I can totally relate to that because I'm a compulsive overeater. And that is something you're completely right. I, I actually, <laughs> it's like, you know, when you first read the AA book and a lot of things you just relate to, like what you just said, I just completely relate to. That's like exactly what I do, but the way you worded it is the best way to describe it. I just wanted to yeah. say that. So you were talking about your ice cream. Please, yeah. Please I go mean, on. It was just, uh, just the way that my addict mind works, you know, instead of, <clears throat> I was not taught by my parents to process emotions in a healthy way. I was not taught, you know, how to respond or not to respond. And so everything I did was to nullify feelings, bring on feelings, you know, or, you know, I was... You know, I was always looking behind or worrying about what's ahead. You know, I never was happy in the moment. You know, I never had a just for today. You know, live today just for today. Never had that. Never did that. Well, during the pandemic, I also had lost two of my my fur babies. And that was probably what set me over the edge and I man just I was drinking I would start off with six shots and it would just go from there and um I was the type of drunk where I loved calling people when I was drunk and it usually didn't end well you know, I not only fell off the wagon, but I used the wood to start a fire and burn bridges while I was still standing on them. <clears throat> and they, it went, my world went up in flame really quickly. And I even so went so far as to get banned from my church, which, you know, it's pretty hard to do, you know, um, churches. You know, I I can't say what they if what they did is right or wrong because they were, um, it was my actions that caused it. If not, but for my actions, it wouldn't have happened. So I can't be upset at them for protecting themselves. <clears throat> I mean, I could, but it'd be unrealistic. Um, I've also learned. Well, let me go forward. Um, and then, you know, I just got, I don't remember having an aha moment. I didn't. In fact, I just wrote something last night. You know, I, for me, my aha moment was the equivalent of God taking a two by four and just whacking me in the head with it. And that's literally, I mean, that's what it takes to get my attention. I'm just not one of those people that respond to that gentle, still soft voice or a burning bush, you know, I need a building to fall on me in order for me to go, what? Hey, what was that? You know? (laughs) And so, uh, 
the first thing I know, I'm sitting at an AA meeting, 9.30 in the morning. And to be honest, I could not tell you. I don't remember driving there. I don't remember anything. I just remember all of a sudden being in that place, in that building. And, <clears throat> man, I was shaking so bad And uh, from withdrawals. And the guys there, I know... You know, they saw what kind of, uh, they saw the shape I was in. And so they switched the topic from what the topic of the day was and to how, what it was like for their first experience coming in. And, um, and that made it a lot easier, you know, to know that there were people out there that understood what I was going through. You know, they weren't just feeling sorry for me, you know, had the world feel sorry for me my whole life. Don't need it. Didn't ask. Well, I don't want to say I didn't ask for it. an addict. I think we all kind of want people to feel sorry for us to an extent. <laughs> but, um, you know, these guys came up after the meeting and, you know, and they're like, we need to exchange numbers and, uh, you know, give us a call every day. And if you don't, we're going to call you. And I'm like, yeah, all right. And, uh, and so sure as hell, you know, and I actually, you know, for the first 30 days, I might have missed one meeting. Um, uh, and so, you know, I, I got to witness and be a part of this fellowship of people that uh, were exactly like me. You know, we all have different stories and different war stories, and different battle stories and stuff. But when we boil all that stuff away and peel back all the crusty, crust, crusty, nasty outer layers you know, we're all left with the same thing. You know, we're all still beautiful people. We just have a really fucked up center. And the whole process of this is trying to get our core healed and replace it with, for me, um, is my spiritual, um, my spiritual life. God, God is my center. And, um, I also don't think that I would have made it. Um, I'm coming up on, in fact, I'm six days away from six months. Well, congratulations. And, well, thank you. But, you know, I I wouldn't have made it if I hadn't <clears throat> um, went for outside help first. Uh, I had to learn to, all right, I should say there I'm in the process. I didn't like learn it and it just, you know, I'm done learning. I'm in the process of learning uh, how to deal with my emotions properly and, um, you know, understanding that even bad emotions are okay. You know, that's perfectly okay to have these bad, you know. And then on top, then after that, you know, after learning after going through the classes for behavioral health, I went through an addictions class at the same institute. And um, 
graduated from there and then went to where my medical center is and started in on a group therapy Zoom thing. So for me, you know, I have never had structure in my life. And that's one of the things that I was lacking. I didn't, I was unfamiliar with it. So for me, getting going through those classes was probably the best thing I could do. Because if I just went into AA and tried to stay sober and um, on my own without learning how to deal with things that were going to come up getting sober, I wouldn't have made it. I would have went ran right back to the bottle. So I'm really grateful, you know, that I was able to find a foundation to put AA on instead of building it, you know, on sand, you know. So when you, you said, you said the last time you were getting sober was six months ago. Um, what was the incident or what happened that made you want to get sober six months ago? Uh, things had uh, taken a turn between my partner and I, and we had a physical altercation. And um, I was beat as a child uh, beyond words. And so as an adult, I made a decision a long time ago that I'm not living in a house like that. And um, that's, you know, worked up until that time, you know. And then after that happened, I made a decision, you know. And, And it was not only affecting me and Jason, but my dogs had started growling at me. Really, my my oldest one. Really, know, I would. Huh? No, I just said sorry about that. I just said really. That's that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, he just got to where they didn't. He didn't trust me, and he was my best buddy in the whole world, and <clears throat> he was one of the ones that passed. Sorry um, to hear that. And so it kills me that he passed while. Um, that he had to see that, you know, before he went. And so, um, you know, I made a decision that I was not going to make my partner or my children, my dogs and my cats and my children. (laughs) I was not going to make my partner or my children live in a house like I grew up in. I was just, I, that wasn't my choice. It's not my choice to make somebody, I, let me rephrase this. I should not have the choice to make someone's life miserable. If I want to make my own life miserable, that's one thing. But when my actions affect other people, I have a responsibility to protect those people that I care about. And so, you know, um, I might have got in the door to AAV for someone else, but I stayed for myself. 
That's perfect. Um, I forget if I discussed it in a podcast or not, but somebody said, one of our members said to me, that even though, when we were talking about this, that even though you get sober for yourself, sometime at first, something motivates you. And there's nothing wrong with a motivating factor, as long as once you get right. there, like you said, you realize you have to do it for yourself because that's the only way to make other people happy is to get right. yourself better so you can be a better person and show them. And not only that, if you use someone else as a <clears throat> motivational tool to stay sober that puts you at risk for relapsing because if something happens between you and that person you know and that person is you know your grounds for staying sober you know and that goes out the window you know so might your sobriety yeah, so you definitely have to do it for yourself because you'll always be there. So, what is your current program? Do you have a current schedule, like you said, because you said structure. So, what's the deal with meetings? Is there something where you're like you dedicate yourself? Because I know you show up to a lot of ours, but do you have a schedule with other meetings, whether they be Zoom or in person. What's your structure like nowadays? Well, I go to meetings six days a week. All right, 10 meetings six days a week. I take a day off for myself. Um, I also go to the meetings for myself too, but I need a day to rest. Uh, and I go to 6.30 meetings um, every morning on Saturdays. Uh, I chair a Zoom meeting for AA and on Wednesdays, I chair a live meeting um, at Bray in the mornings. So you're being a service as well. That's great. That's also something that the founders of AA discovered a long time ago, was that when us addicts help each other and we make sure we you know, contribute to the cause, it keeps us sober. The yeah. Dalai Lama says it best. Because, like, we all say we have to do it for ourselves. So he says we can be wise, selfish. So we can do it for ourselves, not think of any other people, but what we do helps others. So that's being wise, selfish. I like that saying from him. That's great. So is there anything else you wanted to say, Bobby? If anybody's listening to this, you're probably listening for a reason. If you're on the line... um, about wondering whether or not you're an addict, uh, you know, you know that you, I mean, you don't have to question, um, you know, when your heart, whether you are or not, uh, there's all kinds of literature and things online, you know, that simple questions that you can take to find out if you're like, um, exhibiting a lot of the red flag signs of alcoholism um there's all nowadays there's all kinds of treatment centers and uh things on zoom and there's really no reason to let substance abuse continue if you have a desire to not use that's great and uh very uh, wise of you to say that. It's really great. So I just want to say 
thank you to Bobby. Well, thank you, and I really enjoy the the chilling chats. I encourage people to uh, check out the link. Yeah, absolutely. You go to our events tab on the Facebook group Addicts Anonymous, and we do what we call chilling chats, where it's pretty much I joke around saying our structure for that is a lack of structure. So it's really like I just sounds like it's exactly how it sounds, I should say, where we just chill out. We talk about our days. Obviously, a lot of it ties into addiction and recovery issues. Also, if you enjoyed the episode, check us out on iTunes. Give us a rating. We also, as I mentioned before, have our Facebook group where there's a lot of stuff going on in there. We give out free sobriety chips, free cause bracelets. All you got to do is ask. And we do the Zoom meetings, as Bobby mentioned. So check those out. And till next time.